Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Otra vez cerrado, cayó la pelota en el área, gol! ¡Gabriel! ¡Gol! ¡Del Arsenal! ¡Dos a uno! Reclaman una falta ahí sobre Leno, vamos a verla. No, nada, no hay nada, no hay falta de nadie, no hay nada, no le pega. Reclaman una falta ahí sobre Leno, vamos a verla. No, nada. No hay falta de nadie. No, nada, nada. No le pega, no le pega, no le pega, 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 pega. No, nada. No hay falta, no hay falta, no hay falta, pega, pega, pega. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Feeling that kind of top of the league happy, you know, where I figure we're going to be between now and May. Every morning is going to be a goodly morning. Zen, peace, calm, success, all those things. I'm feeling it. How about you? Yeah, we've won. We've had four games and we've won them all. So I see no reason that that pattern should change between now and the end of the season. I mean, the science stands up, right? It's uh, it's three points per game. Mm-hmm. Um, we should, in theory, continue on that trend, which could lead to quite a promising end to the season. Yeah, you never know. You could pick up a little bit of silverware if, if top, that I think going. top four, if we win every game, <laughs> I'm going to say top four is on. Right. There's one for the news aggregators. Gunnar Blog guarantees top four yeah, if Arsenal win stands. every game. <laughs> uh, I assume you had a, a good weekend. Obviously, um, everyone's mood is impacted and affected by affected rather by the uh, by the goings on on the pitch. And from what I could see from your um, post game twitterings and videos, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you you ate something with rocket in it. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did, uh, which is about as uh, middle class as football food as you can get. <laughs> for those um, who, for those who don't know, James, uh, his on the whistle video referenced the fact that he'd recorded something, then noticed he had a gigantic bit of rocket stuck to his tooth, so he had to had yeah. to redo it. Yeah, you can't yeah, put you actually, can't put that stuff out. You just can't. No, no, no. Uh, it's 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 a shame because it had all the the post match atmos. But there you go. Yeah. It was from. Um, any more pizza on Obert Park, um, which is just on the right. east side of the stadium. A, a strong recommendation from me. They sell okay. pizza by the slice on the game day. It's really good. Love that. Love that. Um, My favourite pizza place in Dublin is actually closed down, sadly. Oh, really? I know. I'm slightly bereft, but there That you go. is sad. Mm. This place is good, and it's quite quiet pre-game because it's sort of the wrong side of the ground. And, and actually, mm. on the subject of pizza, they've made – I don't know how – but they've made the Emirates Stadium pizza worse. It was quite bad before, um, but it's been 
redesigned. Ah, okay, sorry. You mean, <laughs> for for a second there, I was thinking that the, they made a pizza in the shape of Emirates Stadium? You mean <laughs> no, the pizza the inside? Pizza they sell inside the Emirates Stadium. I know the stadium is going through a lot of upgrades at the moment, and I'm sure many of them will be good, but I feel, personally, they've downgraded the pizza. I don't know. Others may feel otherwise, but that's been my I, observation. I mean, I would say, you know, just from a, you know, from a fairly outsider point of view, the kind of pizza you would get inside a football stadium in general is unlikely to be of the highest standard. Sure, sure. They they haven't got a kind of traditional wood-fired pizza oven yeah. at every concession stand. There isn't the a guy, stadium. like, spinning the dough, like... Yeah. <laughs> I hear Spurs have that at their stadium. Um, in the cheese no. room. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Listen, let's not get bogged down in it. I don't want to. I don't want to dampen the mood too much with my lamenting the um, changed pizza recipe at the Emirates Stadium. But it is an observation I've made, and that's the insight you guys all crave from me. I Fair know. enough. Fair enough. Um, the, the Athletic understands the pizza. The Athletic really. understands. It's going to be in David Ornstein's <laughs> column about the pizza. I think. Um, no, I, I genuinely had a great day on Saturday. Mm. I, 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 I can't stress enough. Um, I did a little video sort of coming out of the ground, which a, a lot of people um, seem to enjoy. But I, I'm not sure if the TV quite transmitted, from having spoken to people who were at home, like quite how raucous mm. an atmosphere there was, particularly pre-game. It's obviously helped by it being a 5.30 kickoff and people having a bit more time to get to the stadium, have a drink, avoid mm. the pizza. Um, <laughs> but genuinely, the, the concourse was... Rocking. I mean, mm. it was like a North London derby. It's very unusual that you would have that sort of uh, jubilant party atmosphere just for, you know, a fairly bog standard fixture at home to Fulham. Mm. Um, and it was it was really exciting. And I think just speaks to, I guess, the kind of the good vibes that exist around the club at the current point. Yeah, I mean, I saw you talk about, I saw a number of people who were at the ground talking about how the atmosphere was amazing. And, and obviously we, we didn't get that on the TV because we're not sort of privy to what's going on in the concourse and around the ground and everything else. But it is one of those things. I was I was trying to think about how you might describe it, you know, that when there is something like that going on, an atmosphere, you know, you can you can sense it. I mean, you can see it, you can experience it. Obviously there's people, they're happy, they're singing, they're dancing, they're doing what, you know, drinking tequila um, and all the rest of it. You know, we can all see that, but you can also feel something in the air. Same goes if it's like a really negative atmosphere as well, or a nervous atmosphere, you can, you can really feel it. So I don't know if you can put it into words, you know, we can all see that there is belief that there is positivity, that there is hope and optimism around this team, around the club, where it's going, what we're doing, all of that kind of stuff. I think everybody, even the most cynical people out there, would understand that, you know, things are things are looking good and people are enjoying that. But um, how that then manifests itself among 60,000 people inside a stadium is something else entirely, I think. And and we saw it at the end, and I'm sure we will actually, we'll save it till part two because we've got some questions about, you know, celebrating, uh, celebrating yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, how do you try and put it into words beyond this is just fucking good fun? <laughs> well, I think a lot of it is good fun. And that's best exemplified by the fact that 
you know, the Arsenal fans landed upon a, a new chant, which they love, the Saliba chant, which was kind of born at Bournemouth and mm. very much continued in earnest. And I mean, this is it's sort of anecdotally, something I observed is that was happening in the concourses, you know, people singing and dancing to the Saliba song. And you'd see that happen and there'd be some people sort of watching and smiling. Maybe they're filming it on their phone. And then you'd go and get a drink or whatever. You'd come back 10 minutes later and the people who had been watching from the side, smiling or filming it, were now the people in the middle <laughs> doing the Saliba <laughs> dance. And that sort of pattern repeated genuinely for about half an hour pre-game. So there is definitely part of it that is just a kind of um, a revelry, you know, in having kind of a bit of bragging rights in being top of the league and having a kind of relatively stress-free start to the season. But I think underpinning it all are sort of two things, really. I mean, belief is mm -hmm. one. I think Arsenal fans came to this game feeling like Arsenal would win this match um, and confident that the team would be able to cope with whatever adversary Fulham might provide. But also, alongside that belief, a great deal of affection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of love from the fans to these players and it feels quite reciprocated. And there's loads of components in that. Um, you know, everything from, as we spoke about, I think, last week, the, the degree of effort the players make on the pitch, the application, the insight we've been given to them as people, as personalities. But, you know, they they really do love this team. And it has felt like there's definitely been periods in Arsenal's recent history where that hasn't been the case. We're kind of, <laughs> you know, we've... Um, how can I put it? We've sort of supported the team in spite of the team at times or in yeah. spite of certain individuals. Um, whereas now it, it's almost quite uniform, really, the kind of affection in which the team is held. So, yeah, it's it's belief and affection is how I'd characterise it. But it is pretty uh, special. And, yeah, we should definitely savour it while we've yeah. got it. Long may it last. Long may it last because, um, you know... Uh, I'm I'm sort of curious, but at the same time not to see you know when inevitably um, we have a difficult period, you know how this kind of support and this atmosphere gets us through it. But maybe that's a discussion for well, you know a bridge we can cross as and when we come to it, rather than sort of bring the mood down now. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I am I, I, I am I won't go I won't on. go too far into it. But just to say, I, I did have the thought during the game against Fulham that. You know, there were points where it looked like we might not win this match or it might at least be difficult to. Mm. And and genuinely, I did sort of look around me and think, I think the club is in a position where, as much as that would be disappointing, that it could have been sort of sustained. You know, I mm. think that people, I don't think it would have dampened anybody's uh, admiration for the group of players because, you know, really, they kind of did everything to win the game. It was a question of if they'd get that final break. Fortunately... They did, and it's not, like you say, it's not a question we have to trouble ourselves with too yeah. much at this point in time. All right, well, let's get on to the game then. And there were two uh, big pieces of injury news beforehand. Thomas Partey out and Alexander, Alexander Zinchenko out, mm. uh, which meant starts for Mohamed Elneny and Kieran Tierney. And look, I think Arsenal pretty much dominated the, the first half. And I was watching it, and 
you know, I felt it's not that I think either Tierney or, or El Nenny were bad in any way, but it also felt like we were kind of missing something, you know, because those as Zinchenko in particular has been extremely important um, and extremely influential. I think Tierney is a, a different kind of player. So it did have a little bit of an impact on perhaps our, how will I put it, the, the, the amount of chances or the amount of opportunities we created, even though we played a lot of the game in the Fulham half, they didn't really threaten at all in the in the first half. Um, we didn't have too many chances, but we did have a couple of good opportunities maybe to score. Um, I mean, do you think it took a little bit of time for the team to adjust to those absences? Maybe. I think there's kind of only so much adjustment you can do to absences like those in mm. the... You know, we don't have another Zinchenko. We have a fullback in Kieran Tierney who is stylistically quite different. And I think players like Thomas Partey are relatively rare uh, in terms of what he provides, the speed at which he's able to move the ball forward. Certainly, it's not something Mohamed Elneny matches, but I'm not convinced it's something many players do match. And I think the loss of both at the same time Mm. was kind of unfortunate. You know, I think... um, Zinchenko coming in has actually slightly reduced our dependency on Partey in terms of the build-up and playing it out from the back, um, passes from deep. And and I actually think there's a pretty decent case that he might have been quite a good replacement for Partey, whether or not he played in Mm. that central midfield position or started at left-back. So to lose both simultaneously was a bit of a blow. But I'm kind of of the mind to say that I'm sort of more reassured, really, with how Arsenal still managed to completely dominate uh, the game. And actually, yeah, in the final third, we maybe didn't quite convert that into as many clear chances as we would have liked in that first half. Mm. But um, I actually thought our build-up and our kind of control of the ball and things like that were pretty good. And the main thing I was impressed by was the intensity with which Arsenal won the ball back. Every Mm. time Fulham had possession... You know, Arsenal were on them, harrying them. And, you know, with the atmosphere from the crowd and the ball boys quickly getting the ball back into play, there was a there was an intensity about mm. what Arsenal were doing. Yeah, I mean, you can think back to last season as well, can't you, when we missed Partey and Tierney and it had a, a significant effect on the team. And I suppose if you're looking at everything with your glass relatively half full, you could say, well, we missed Partey and Zinchenko, but we went uh, and won the game, even if it was more difficult perhaps than some people might have thought. Um, I think Fulham showed, to be honest, I think Fulham showed against Liverpool. I know Liverpool have had some some issues at the start of this season, but I think Fulham showed against Liverpool on the opening day that they're going to be a tough side. Uh, for a while anyway, at least, you know, while this little bit of momentum, if you can call it that, um, continues for them, I think they're going to be a, a difficult side to play against. Um, but, uh, you know, I liked a lot of what we did until we got right until the opposition box a couple of times it just didn't it didn't really uh the final pass wasn't there or the shot wasn't there you think about the Xhaka shot I don't know that that pass back from Gabriel Jesus was quite as good as it should have been and there was a a Saka chance if you remember when he went through but I thought some of the combination play between Saka and Martin Odegaard you know absolutely ran the show he was Brilliant, I thought, in um, not just in in what he did, but in the sort of example that it sets. You know, people have questioned the captaincy. People questioned him after the opening game against uh, Crystal Palace. 
But I think in every game since, he's been better and better and better. He scored two last week. He scored one and, you know, led the team. He really did um, play a captain's role without it being the archetypal, big standing up, I'm shouting and bashing my chest kind of captain type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was outstanding, definitely. And I, I personally, I've never really questioned him because his quality is so... Uh, abundant and so obvious technically he's absolutely outstanding um I thought he was brilliant on the day and actually you know I've seen some talk of you know was Saka a bit underwhelming or disappointing I actually thought in the, in the first half Saka was probably Arsenal's most dangerous player at times and um popped up in some interesting positions you know he was allowed a bit more freedom he was on the left he was through the middle might well have scored possibly should have done good save from Leno but good feet from Saka just beforehand um, but Odegaard was the undoubted star and, you know, in the second half in particular, he just grew and grew into the game and the way in which he was kind of dropping deep to dictate the midfield, mm. getting forward to supplement the attack, you know, it, it's a, an easy comparison to make, but it reminded me of the way in which Cesc Fabregas used to lead a young Arsenal side, you know, um, kind of the creative hub, but with such work rate and desire to complement that. Mm. Uh, he was um, fantastic. And when Arsenal needed someone to pick the lock, he was trying absolutely everything in his bag of tricks. And, you know, some of the passes we saw from mm. him and some of the touches were outrageous. Well, there were. There was one where he cut inside maybe two players and switched it over to the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. It was just yeah. like, oh my goodness. I mean, that is yeah. just, it's majestic the way that A, he can execute it, but B, he's got the vision. And I suppose that taps into maybe um, the way the players are being set up and coached to know where, you know, their teammates are supposed to be in certain situations. Um, and we know Arteta is a bit of a... Um, He's got some exacting standards in that regard. If you remember the the thing from All or Nothing, like the numbered zones on that whiteboard. Um, so yeah, he yeah. wants he wants Arsenal's players to kind of you know be able to close their eyes and know where all their teammates are mm. effectively. Um, and Odegaard certainly plays like he has that kind of vision. I mean, the pass for Enketia, the one where he just sort of lifted mm. it over the defence, was sumptuous, really, and kind of the imagination to see that and the technique to execute it um, so perfectly. I mean, it was just audacious. And this was a performance where, when Arsenal needed Odegaard, he absolutely mm. stepped up. So second half, you know, having gone in level, second half, I think Arsenal were beginning to turn the heat up a little bit on Fulham. Um, there was a, a Martin Odegaard shot. Uh, from outside the box, which which Leno saved, he could possibly have played in Saka. But people people often criticise Odegaard for not shooting enough, so I got no issue with him there. It was a decent shot. And then was it Granite Xhaka set up a chance for Gabriel yeah. Jesus, and he didn't really connect. You could see what he was trying to do, but didn't get any power. And then Fulham were ahead. So I mean, what did you make of the? The the own goal, the own goal. Do you hear me saying own goal? It's not an own goal, but the mistake, obviously, from from Gabriel, uh, which led to uh, Mitrovic's goal. Um, I've got quite a lot of thoughts about it. Okay, <laughs> basically, it it shouldn't have happened. Arsenal were, like you say, getting on top, um, and I think what happened is that Fulham had a breakaway mm. counter attack. Um, and Arsenal kind of chased back and 
it went out for a, an Arsenal throw on the far side. Mm. And basically, Bukayo Saka found himself in the right-back position, taking the throw on. Mm. And Ben White was kind of just ahead of him. And he sort of trotted up towards the halfway line, yeah. kind of left it for Saka to take. And it, I was worried then because it's just not typical, really. Like in that situation, your fullback chucks mm. it down the line, you know, or yeah. knocks it inside to a centre half. And there was something a little bit chaotic about that. It didn't feel like something that was structured or part of the plan. Mm. Saka then took it. He got the ball back. And I, bear in mind, I was at the other end of the pitch. So maybe it wasn't quite the risky pass that it looked from where I was in the north bank. But it did seem to me a bit of an unnecessarily lofted pass across your own box. Mm. Um, now, so so all those factors, you know, I don't think Saka should have been taking that throw in. I'm not sure he should have played that pass. All that said, of course, if, if Gabriel's touch is perfect, um, we probably never think about it ever again. But yeah. I just think when you've got a six foot three centre half, whose greatest attribute is probably you know, his physical prowess. Um, I'm not sure how wise it is to be chucking sort of 30-yard lofted passes yeah. at them across the pitch. I don't know. I I know where you're coming from. Um, I was sort of watching it again here and just seeing how much space and time Gabrielle had to receive mm. that pass. Like, I think, you know, the, the textbooks will say, don't play the ball across your own box like that. Um I suppose the thing is, Mikel Arteta wants his team to play. He wants them to keep the ball. There is an element of risk involved when you play out from the back and play with the ball around the back. Yeah. Um, so I see what you're saying. I just think it's kind of two, maybe even three really poor touches from from Gabriel. Like he had, like his, um, if you look at it, his first touch should be away from him, Right. Mm. out towards Kieran Tierney, but he brings it back inside, takes another poor touch, and then is sort of closed down by Mitrovic, who robs him and who's strong anyway. So I think really it's the first touch. The second touch and the third touch aren't good, but the first touch in that situation should be him opening up his body and going out towards the left touch line and playing the pass out towards Kieran Tierney, you know? Yeah, so, that's true. I, I also wondered, and again, like I'm not making excuses for Gabriel. He... Mm look bad touches but I also wondered if this was one of the situations where we did miss Zinchenko and Partey just in terms of sort of their availability and and capacity to receive the ball you know in front of Gabriel there if they mm. if it had been one of those guys stood right in front of him would he have given it earlier or maybe, maybe. I don't know but you know it, it's I still think as well he's punished to the absolute maximum I mean the the tackle from Mitrovic I'd say nine times out of 10. Defender it, gets away with it. Yeah, or like it ends in a foul. Like mm. he, he reaches in from behind and sort of drags the ball away from Gabriel. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess you've got to give him some credit, but I'd say it's it's pretty unfortunate to actually get caught quite as badly as that. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there were there were some pictures at the end of the game. Did you see, um, you know, when all the all the raucous, uh, over-the-top, yeah. ridiculous celebrations were going on, um, that there was a, a moment where you could see 
Saka and Gabrielle deep in conversation. <laughs> and and Gabrielle was a bit like, dude, what the fuck? And Saka was like, come on, man, you should be able to deal with that. So I think it's probably one of those scenarios that I, ideally Mikel Arteta would prefer not to um, happen. I think, you know, you're right to say that probably it goes back to the way we took the throw in. Um yeah. Was Ben White trying to get up the pitch and start a break? I'm not sure that that was the right decision. Um, so yeah, I, don't know. I just think you know if Ben White is a bit more conservative, takes that throw in, mm. gives it to Saka or Saliba, gets it back. You know, he's a player who's really used to playing in that area of the pitch and making quite calculated judgments in terms of the pass he plays. Gabriel, yeah, I mean the touch wasn't great, and there have been a couple of moments this season where that has been the case, but. I just think that's sort of the trade-off that you mm. make with him a little bit. I mean, he you know he can be a tiny bit rough around the edges, but that roughness is a valuable asset in another mm. respect in terms of the physicality that he brings to the bat foot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a disappointing um, concession, but then again, yeah. one of the things, and it's very early days, I know we're working on a very small sample size, but one of the positive signs for me about this Arsenal team is the way that it is responding to setbacks or or moments that don't go our way. So you think back to the Leicester game where we scored, uh, Leicester scored, we scored immediately. Uh, Leicester scored again, we scored immediately. And this wasn't quite immediate. There was, what, maybe five minutes between them? Maybe, yeah, there thereabouts. But inside five minutes, you know, we have the scores level and it's a, it's a, look, it's maybe a touch fortunate, but again, it comes back to Odegaard finding space. I mean, it's a nice move, fairly simple move. Saliba plays a ball into Saka on the turn, who plays it to Martin Odegaard, who steps over it beautifully to make space for a shot, deflects off the, off the defender and beyond Leno. But like, if you, you know, what's the old adage? If you're not in, you can't win. If you don't shoot, you're never going to get the deflection. So great to respond that quickly. And when Mikel Arteta talks about character, and we'll talk about Gabriel now, I'm sure, but when he talks about character and talks about, you know, resilience in his team and adversity, I mean, this was, this was the scenario. Did you see the stat actually? Andrew Allen tweeted it from the, it came from arsenal.com. Um, and this is what it said. Yesterday's win against Fulham was the first time the Gunners have won a Premier League game after conceding the first goal in the second half since December 2013, mm. which is remarkable. And one of the one of the issues about last season was our inability to overturn um, losing positions. So when we went behind, it was usually not good. The outcome while not predetermined, you know, we were we didn't have a great deal of success in turning things around. So I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about what we were expecting from this season, what we're looking for this season. One of the improvements you're looking to make is, is the ability to come from behind and take all three points. And that um, feeds into, you know, what I'm talking about here is that we don't let heads go down. How often in the last number of years did you see an Arsenal team concede a goal and immediately like look rattled and look like conceding more goals? Whereas what's happening now, and again, I stress it's a small sample size, but when we go behind, we're looking to get back into games rather than fall further behind. Yeah, definitely. And 
I, I, it was a really good response. Um, I think I'm right in saying Arsenal responded pretty well when Leicester scored in the last home game too. You yeah, know, yeah. That, that, that you know it was quite instantaneous in terms of going up the other end of the pitch. And um, yeah, I, I really liked that Odegaard took the shot on. He, in his post-match interview, he kind of said something about you know, you know, sometimes it's good to take the shot. Um, because you can get the benefit, and he was almost sort of reminding himself, or almost—it was almost like something that he would—he'd been thinking about before mm. the game. You know, we saw him score a couple of goals against Bournemouth, and he took the responsibility in this moment. And yeah, deflection definitely helped. It was one of those days where it's not like Leno was making a ton of saves, but you knew, you know, given that he had just signed for Fulham from Arsenal, I had that deep fear in me that he was going to have an absolutely world-class performance. Mm. Um, and it might take something special or something a bit lucky to beat him. We got a bit lucky with this one. And of course, yeah. uh, later on, he made a, a big error to help us out. Yeah. Um, yeah, you always fear that, don't you? Returning yeah, player course. making a big impact. And, uh, you know, when it's a goalkeeper. Do you remember that game years and years ago? I think it was a nil-nil with Fulham and Edwin van der Sar made about 50 saves. And I'm not even exaggerating here. It yeah. was ridiculous. I was I was expecting something a bit similar. So, look, uh, one of the things that I didn't mention was that the minute we conceded, Mikel Arteta made a change. Mm-hmm. And he took his left back off and put a striker on. Now, we've watched Mikel Arteta closely over the last two and a half, three years. That is relatively unusual in the pantheon of Mikel Arteta substitutions. Mm-hmm. I'm positive, no? I mean, I liked it. I was like, okay. Because I was thinking, who's I could see on the sideline um, that uh, Eddie was coming on, and I was thinking, who's going to go off? And my initial thought was, it's probably going to be El Nenny, maybe. You know, just right. take off that uh, holding, slightly defensive, less progressive midfielder and put a striker on. And then you could shift Granite Shaka back in there and drop Martin Odegaard in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a striker for a left back is, is, yeah, I mean, that feels familiar in the, in the history of, of Arsenal and Arsenal's best teams. It's like, okay, we're sacrificing something for more up top. Definitely. And actually, we went to a shape that we'd used in pre-season. Um, I forget which game it was, maybe the Everton game. But we definitely had experimented with uh, this kind of three, I'd call it a three, four, one, two, really, um, with Saka and Martinelli as like, you know, attacking wing backs um, and White as a third centre back and two up top with Nketiah and, and Jesus. And, you know, I think we've benefited so much from the work we did in preseason. And this was another case of that, um, you know, something that we have actually tried and worked on. It wasn't just pure chaos it was mm. part of a plan he did say that didn't he afterwards um something about that you know that they had um made a plan for various uh, scenarios yeah well there you go and, and and this is something we've seen before um we saw it a little bit last season in terms of the shape but i think uh eddie had a really good cameo actually i thought he was excellent off the bench and um this was sort of a continuation of what we saw from him in pre-season where he was direct, aggressive, uh, athletic, and a, a threat. And he he worked extremely hard mm. too. And I just think that second striker on the pitch, um, I think it gave Fulham a problem to think about in their own defensive third. I actually thought that in some respects, uh, switching up the, the midfield shape, it didn't enormously 
help us. I felt that there were times where our build-up play wasn't quite as smooth or Mm. as good, but I thought that once we got into their half, those extra bodies in central areas um, helped. I agree, and I think Eddie probably should have scored. He'll think he should have scored. You know, the one with... um the, you mentioned the Martin Odegaard pass, um, which was which was brilliant. I think that demanded either a first-time effort on goal or a first-time knock back across to Gabriel Jesus. But there was a lovely mm-hmm. turn in the box, and he he shot um, not far wide. I, I do think that helped us with our attacking momentum, though. I know what you're saying about the build-up, but I just think in terms of you know trying to pile on some pressure late in the game – uh, he really did make a good contribution to that. And I think Leno made a save from Martinelli at one point. There was a, I can't remember, there was another one. But we, we also have to acknowledge and, and maybe give some props to Aaron Ramsdale, who made a very good save from Mitrovic, uh, a header from Mitrovic from a corner that should never have been a corner. It was clearly yeah. uh, a goal kick. And one of those, I think, that had it gone in, you know, the, there would have been headlines and all kinds of raging about that. But he made a very, very good save. And to be fair to Fulham and to be fair to Mitrovic, after he got the goal, he was, I think, a bit energized. You know, he he was a threat. There was another one that he headed over. Um, you know, he had his moments. He's, um, he's a difficult player to play against. And um, I, I think we probably have to acknowledge that before we then go on to talk about um, the late winners. So, yeah, he's you know. extremely awkward. He's a real handful. Mm. I mean, I think it was Gabriel he got above for that header on the corner. And, you know, I've spoken a lot about Gabriel, Gabriel's power and athleticism today. And he, he just, you know, monstered him on that one. And it, it was not too far away from Ramsdale, but it had a lot of power. Mm. And actually, I think... Huge credit to Ben White as well, who made a fantastic oh, yeah, 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 yeah. on the follow-up. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, it's it's great defending that. Yeah, I mean, that's goal-saving stuff, mm. really, from him. And that was just after we got the equaliser, I think. So would have been a real momentum killer. Mm. Um, but we survived that moment. And, I mean, the crowd, you know, we spoke about the crowd at the start, but the crowd as soon as we got back into the game, went to another level. I mean, I keep a little file open on my phone in which I make occasional notes for the podcast. Right. And and, uh, (laughs) when Odegaard scored, um, I've just written in caps, the noise. Like it was, (laughs) there was this huge wave of noise. And when I came away from the Emirates Stadium after the game, my ears were genuinely ringing. Like I'd been at a gig, stood right by the speakers or something. And, I haven't had that experience many, many times. So um, there was this sort of sense of expectation might be too much, but real hope that we could get that goal. And, you know, there was a, like I said, just a momentum in the ground. Um, Maybe that sort of post-rationalisation, but it did feel like it was, it was headed in that direction. Yeah, like I said, it's it's stuff you can feel, and when you make some chances, and um, you know Martinelli, you remember had a, I think he had a really good chance to uh, pull the ball back across mm. goal, and he went for a, a, a really near difficult shot, shot at the near post, um, which you know ironically, or I don't know if ironically is the right word here, you know that led to the corner, which mm-hmm. brought about the goal. So you know maybe we can complain, but yeah, you could feel it, you could sense it on the TV that the the crowd as the the 
um, how would you say, it? like the twelfth man type thing, were were playing their part in a in a fairly substantial way. Of course, it's down to the team. It's this symbiotic thing, isn't it? That when the team is pushing and trying to make chances and trying to score that winning goal, you know, it gives you something to really get behind in the stand. So it works both ways. So let's talk about the the goal then. And I thought one of the interesting things about it was. Martinelli's set-piece delivery this season has been really good. We've talked about it before. The the trajectory of the set-pieces and the corners he puts in uh, and the pace he puts on them has been brilliant and really difficult for defenders to deal with. And consistently on Saturday, his set-pieces were easy for the goalkeeper to deal with, for Bernd Leno to pick up at the back post, for defenders to head away. They were too lofted, not enough pace on them, etc., etc. And I do wonder, actually, I don't know what you think about this, but you know that bit where he has to step down off the pitch mm. to take a corner? I mean, do we have that at the training ground? Is that something we have at the training ground where he you can replicate that because... Question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, but it would be strange if we didn't because you, you have a very different experience at the Emirates Stadium as opposed to like a, a pristine pitch at London Colney where you can you can run up as much as you like, whereas he has to take a step down. And I do wonder if that plays a small part sometimes in the, the occasional poor delivery. Anyway, he put in a really good corner. Leno came, didn't get anywhere near it. Um, Saliba challenged, ball dropped. There's Gabrielle. And, you know, for all the criticism of the mistake that he might make. Has any defender, central defender, scored more goals in the Premier League than him in the last no. 12 months or so? I don't the think so. That is no. He oh, was right. the highest scoring central defender in the Premier League last season. Wow. Uh, six, I think. The Athletic it, understands. Yeah, he is a huge threat in the opponent's mm. box. Um and, and genuinely, like, you know, in the in the sort of question of, well, Arsenal, what should Arsenal's starting centre-back pairing be? I think that is a consideration. I mean, you know, he really does um, cause problems for for defences. Mm. And just on the Martinelli thing, I agree his set-pieces were bad on the day. And um, there were a couple of short ones as well that I thought were a bit needless. Um, but I was chatting to my cousin Will after the game, sits a few rows in front of me, and he was saying that he thought the reason that so many of the corners were kind of looped into the goalkeeper's hands, and of course there was the one that hit the crossbar in the first half, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that he thought Arsenal were trying to get the ball under Leno, you know, to sort of test him um, in that area. Sure. And to be fair to Leno, for 88 minutes or whatever it was, he handled that pretty well. But I guess it only has to work once yeah, so yeah, yeah. I don't know maybe they were poor deliveries or maybe that was something Arsenal were looking to exploit but on one occasion you know he did come off second best and couldn't have fallen more kindly really and you couldn't have chosen someone <laughs> no. for it to fall to I mean you know what a perfect redemptive moment yeah it is I mean I think I, I know what that point about you know the what they're trying to do with Leno and I think I can see where where he's coming from there. My my sense is that where Leno was always weak was at his near post rather than his far post. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and that, interestingly, Thomas Partey is often Arsenal's man on that near post looking yeah. for that flick on and he wasn't there. And I wonder if maybe that affected Martinelli's decisions about mm. how he played those corners. Who knows? But Who knows? yeah, they, they weren't a strength on the day. Until they yet, were. And yet they came through. <laughs> and, 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 you know... 
I did actually feel for Bernd Leno a bit because he's a player who left Arsenal with a lot of affection um, and it's a it's a big mistake and one he'll reflect on. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I guess once a gooner, always a gooner, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's what it was. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, yeah. It, what it, about those celebrations as well? Oh, uh, the celebrations were amazing, weren't they? And that, you know, we, we'll talk again in the second period, like I said, in the second half of the show where we've got some questions about everything. You know, that... Um, that speaks to the team feeling what's going on as well, you know, and not just like, oh, we're here for the good vibes. They're here to win. They're here. They're, they're out there to win games. And I think they would, they would have looked at themselves if they come off that pitch against Fulham uh, at 1-1 with a draw, they would have been gutted, absolutely disappointed with themselves. Um, you know, the... The celebrations are as much about feeding into the good times, but also just this desire to take the maximum from every single game. Um, so Saliba with his tongue out, uh, doing his best um, Gene Simmons from Kiss impression. Pretty brilliant. I loved uh, uh, Poorly Drawn Arsenal's version of that, which you can find on his Twitter. It's very funny. Um, There's some good pictures, actually, of um, I think it's Saliba and Thierry Henry in 2012 yeah, yeah, yeah. return this sort of identical posture did um, you see him as well though you probably I don't know if you did see it or if you've watched it back but there's a moment where like the TV cameras are focusing on the celebrations and then Saliba just comes into view like ah. uh, <laughs> I got to talk about that by the way because when I went to see Saliba at the velodrome in Marseille mm. they were playing Nice it was a big derby and when they scored their goals, I noticed that Saliba just sort of went off on his own and celebrated with the crowd. And it was very much the sort of thing we saw on Saturday, you know, banging the chest, tongue out. Like he loved it. He loved it. Mm. And, I, and one of the things I thought when I was there, the atmosphere was incredible. I was, kind of, I was like, he loves this. Like he thrives on the drama and the crowd mm. and the atmosphere. And he was so connected to it and so part of it. And it was the same at Saint-Étienne. Like there were some big games where he was kind of like almost in the fans celebrating. Mm. And, and, I, and I had this fear of like, will he feel that in London? Yeah, will yeah, he yeah. be able to recreate that passion and that connection for him? And so to see him like that four games in, was fantastic. I, I felt so thrilled that he, yeah. you know, is building that connection so swiftly. I, I I know exactly where you're coming from, and it is brilliant. He's obviously feeling it. He's playing his part in the team. He feels connected with his teammates. You know, that's a guy who's all who he's on board. He's on the bus, isn't he? You know. Yeah, uh, to to use a, a Mikel and Zinchenko as well. Was, I mean, that was great to see. I, yeah, Zinchenko like racing down the sidelines. I was going, dude, you've got a brace on your knee. You're missing the game because you sprained your knee. Just calm down. But it's brilliant. And there was another video as well. Did you see? Uh, I don't know where I saw it. Maybe I saw it on Twitter last night. Um, There's a few doing the rounds of him in the dugout. Yeah, the, the fourth official. He's having words with the fourth official at one point. Yeah, and you know, again. That speaks to someone who's fully bought in mm. and I think tells you everything about the kind of character he is. And, you know, the players who don't play seem as invested 
as those who do. And yeah. Something I think that was nice about this victory as well is, you know, a lot of players played a part. You know, Tommy Asu came on once we got the goal, I think, and helped shore things up. Rob Holding got his mm-hmm. his his uh, his holding time flaxen <laughs> and uh, came on. It, yeah, it's one of those where if you don't get that winner, it's a really frustrating day and you sort of feel a bit deflated. But to win it in that fashion, it's that curious thing where it sort of feels better and does more for you as a group than a 2-0 a stroll, sure. you know? Yeah, you have to... You have to Like if one of your weaknesses is an inability to come from behind in games, the only way you start to believe you can do it is by doing it, you know? And and um, that was the case, I think, yesterday. I think the, the celebrations were, were, for me, completely understandable. Um, like I said, I think it, this is a group of players who are really, really um, motivated this season, who want every single point, who do not want to come away from any game without feeling that, you know, they've given it everything to to take all three points. Um, and I, I was curious if you saw Mikel Arteta's comments about Gabriel, about how he's changed his mentality mm. um, and how that can feed into this kind of scenario where we can come from behind and win because, you know, a player like Gabriel, where I think he had another shaky moment not long after the the bit where he was caught on the ball for the goal, there was a clearance over the top where he should have just knocked it back to Ramsdale. But instead, I think he tried to play it back upfield or play it out for throw. Mitrovic closed it down. It went out. There was no danger, but it was one of those where the ball could have squirted into the path of the attacking player because he was a little bit... Um, you know, hesitant or not quite as uh, decisive in that moment as he should have been. But he talked afterwards about how his head went down and then his teammates were, you know, talking to him and his head went back up. And Arteta spoke about the, you know, the change in his mentality, his character, those kinds of things, which we don't, we're not really privy to. You know, you think a, a guy is a, a big Brazilian central defender. Okay, you've made a mistake, get on with it. But we know some players can be a bit introspective and that they... They will never think about the hundred things that they do well in a match and will dwell on the one thing that they do poorly, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And again, it's one of those moments where you sort of like, but I want a documentary of every season so I can understand all the backroom <laughs> stuff. But yeah, I think he's been through this before, Gabriel, in a way. I mean, obviously there was the Wolves match last season, right, where... He made a big error and the team mm. came through for him and, and bailed him out. This one, of course, he managed to kind of finish the job off himself, which I think will leave him feeling even more at peace with things. But making mistakes is part and parcel of life as a defender. Um, you know, we saw William Saliba score an own goal yeah. uh, in the last home game. Uh, you know, we saw Aaron Ramsdale nutmeg by James Madison. You know, things happen at mm. the back and it is about your response to those moments of adversity. And I think individually and collectively, Arsenal managed that really well. So it was a really um, reassuring performance. And I, I just think as well, I, I was watching the game thinking, okay, maybe this is the day we slip up. I mean, you know, the best teams in this league, teams that are better than us, are drop, have dropped points already mm. because... Every point in the Premier League, you have to fight tooth and nail for. I mean, as good as Man City are, they're having to come from 
you know, a couple of goals behind, it seems, yeah. in order to get the points on the board. And it's only their exceptional quality that enables them to do that. Um, you know, we've seen Liverpool dropping points all over the place. We've seen Chelsea uh, battered by Leeds. A fixture can look easy on paper, but getting that three points back from it is another thing entirely. And every time you would do that, it is something to be celebrated. It is. Without wishing to foreshadow yeah. where the conversation will go. Well, it is. And I agree with you 100%. And, and you know, we'll, we'll save the rest of that discussion for the second part. But just finally on this and on the game... Um, you know, I know we've got a fairly busy schedule this week. We've got Crystal Palace on Wednesday, then we've got a trip to Old Trafford on on Sunday. And given yeah. that the game was 1-1, it was heading into the final stages, were you a little bit surprised that we didn't see a bit more from the bench? Because I was thinking, well, maybe now is a Smith-Rowe moment. Maybe now is when you throw on Fabio Vieira to, to see what he can do in the final few minutes, get them involved, get them, you know, playing a few minutes, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I don't mean this to be any kind of criticism or downer or anything like that, but I was just curious as to why you thought Mikel Arteta was reluctant to give more from the bench. Was he just confident that the, the players he had out there could do the job? Um, or, or do you reckon there was anything else to it? I was a bit surprised. I was going to ask you the same question because... If you think back to last season, I mean, if you needed a goal from the bench, Emil Smith-Rowe was absolutely a man mm. to get it. Um, and he was so often the first sub in the games. I, I think the answer is one relating to balance. As I say, Arteta changed the shape slightly and he had, you know, White, Saliba and Gabriel playing as a, a true three, really. Mm. And then he had Saka and Martinelli out wide. Shaka and El Nenny in the middle, mm. and then Odegaard behind the two strikers. And I suppose the question is sort of where would Smith Rowe come into that team? You, 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 he probably felt, given how attacking this shape is, I, I need to keep Shaka and El Nenny on there for balance. And then you're talking about taking off one of Odegaard, Martinelli, Saka, Jesus. Mm. And I, I guess the simple answer is that Arteta didn't really want to do that, that he felt that, you know, this group had the right balance to get the job done. Mm. But I was a little bit surprised, maybe less so Vieira, just because I think sure. he's such an unknown quantity in this league and he's still acclimatising and how fit is he? But I guess the same in terms of fitness could be said of Smith Rowe. I mean, ultimately, he's played a handful of minutes. He started the season injured. And maybe the physical side is a, a factor in Arteta's thinking at this mm. point in time. All right. What well, do you think? Well, I I think he was just confident that the players out there could do it. Yeah. Um, I think if he was truly desperate for the winning goal, he probably would have changed something, you know? Um. So I think he was just confident that the guys could could do it. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm interested to see now what happens this week, and maybe we'll talk about that in part two as well. I think we might have a question or two about rotation for the Villa game and with with United on Sunday. But I do think, like, if he was if he was looking at that side, thinking no, they're not going to score, he would have had to have done something else from the bench. So. Um, I don't think it's a slight on either Smith Rowe or Vieira, but um, 
you know, maybe it was just his faith in the, in the players he had out there, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious to see. We've got questions about, you know, rotation and things like that. So mm. maybe let's chat about that in part two. All right. Well, we will take a break right here. We'll come back with your questions in part two right after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an ArsBlog member. On Patreon, you can sign up if you like, get lots of extra content and help support everything we do. Patreon.com forward slash ArsBlog. Um, we, we've got to get this one done because we've just had so many questions about it. So on the Discord, Blair says, do the celebration police understand how football works? Three points are up for grabs, whether you're playing Fulham or Manchester City. And somehow these commentators don't seem to grasp the importance of that. What gives? And also on this particular um, topic, uh, and many of you um, asked us uh, about this, Kieran McCormick, who's at Kieran underscore MC81, says, did you guys see Richard Keyes and Andy Gray celebration police outburst? And what did you think of what the cretinous turd had to say? Cretinous turd, I like. Cretinous turd. Um, I, I listen. I, I'm on record about what I think about the celebration police phenomenon. I think it's ridiculous and absurd. The, what I will say is that I do think it's a relatively isolated incident this time. It appears to mainly be Richard Keys, who is less kind of uh, celebration police and more kind of crazed, obsessive, um, creepy neighbourhood watchman who, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I think is out there pretty much on his own at this point because his bitterness is just palpable. The fact that when he's... I mean, I have unfortunately watched the clip, the, mm. the initial clip. He's still talking about it. There have been su subsequent clips uh, express expressing his displeasure. But the fact that he sort of has to get in... You know, and I, I, by the way, I, you know, I can't hide how much Mikel Arteta irritates me waving his arms yeah, around yeah, yeah, and leaving yeah. his technical area. I mean, it's like, you know, talk about wearing your bias on your sleeve. Um, it's ridiculous. And actually, have you heard the um, alternative commentary on the game from the, 
I think it's from the NBC. Uh, oh yeah, I saw that. Is it Peter Drury? Yeah. yeah. Have you watched it? Yeah. Uh, maybe drop it in, but like, it's such a different complexion on the full-time whistle and the celebrations and where Arsenal are at at this point in time. And I think it's so much more accurate as a reflection of the atmosphere. And I guess maybe Peter Drury is there in the stadium. Yeah. And maybe that's um, an important component in this. Not that I'm trying to give Richard Keyes an out, but like if you're in that ground, you understand the emotion so much more than if you're... um, effectively banished yeah. to a studio away from English football. I have the Peter Drury bit here. I'll play it. Here it is. Arsenal win it by sheer force of personality. They are still perfect. They are still top. They trailed to Alexander Mitrovic. But as winning teams do, they found a little bit more. Erdogan, 64. Gabriel, 86. And you find yourself wondering this Rebecca, you find yourself wondering whether this time Arsenal are the real deal. Winners again, 2-1. Uh, someone added the dramatic music, of course. I don't think Peter that was... He insisted on that, I believe. Um, I don't think that was he, on the original He's playing that on yeah. little keyboard. Um, <laughs> His synthesizer, he's sitting there like Howard Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's such a different... And I think... Of course. It reflects more how how... We feel. I mean, it probably mm. goes further. Actually, I think I think most Arsenal fans are actually fairly realistic about mm. that we've beaten and where we are and what our prospects are for the remainder of the season. I don't think many Arsenal fans are going. You know, we joked at the start of this podcast about. Well, I imagine we'll just simply win the league at this pace. Um, I think most Arsenal fans recognise we've got a long way to go. Winning four consecutive games in the Premier League, winning any game in the Premier League is challenging, requires something. I mean, I also thought it was incredibly disrespectful to Fulham, the way Richard Keyes expressed himself. You know, it's just yeah. Fulham. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, here's the thing, right? And, and you know, I'm not alone and you're not alone. I, I remember Tim saying, what did he say at the live show? The celebration could, uh, police can fuck all the way off. And they can. They can come back and they can fuck off again because it is absolutely absurd. Like, life is hard. Life is tough. There's a lot of bad shit in the world. And if you can go somewhere and be overjoyed for a few minutes and then subsequently for a couple of hours afterwards while you celebrate your football team winning a game. I mean, we've made this point before, but, like, if the only time you can celebrate is when you win something, then, you know, nobody would celebrate the first goal in the game or the second goal because you just don't know if that's going to be the goal that's going to win the game. You know, you celebrate the first goal in the five minutes and you end up losing 6-1. Do people turn around and go, ha-ha, you, you celebrated a goal? It's just so inane and so mm. unbelievably stupid. And And what's worse about all this is, like, one... Clearly, from a Richard Key's point of view, this is a personal issue he has with Mikel Arteta because the comments you you know highlighted make that abundantly clear. The other thing to say is that um, you know Andy Gray was not really on the same page as Richard Keyes until Keyes started spouting off and then like immediately like some kind of fawning sycophant got on board with his mate and was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I'm on your team. But now. even then, I don't think he fully agreed with him. I mean, I think no. he... And there's a good clip during the rounds of Nigel de Jong in the studio with Keyes and Gray. I haven't seen that one yet. 
All right. So then Keyes is just on his hobby horse about it again. And De Jong basically says, I think you're going way overboard with the celebration stuff. I think we should be talking about the game and, you know, they won in adversity and we should be looking at the performance, not talking about whammed after the final whistle. It's a shame Nigel de Jong didn't tackle him, you know, chest tight the way he did uh, on Chelsea. Hopefully Alonso. he did off camera. But I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, I sort of, listen, it's it's nice to have a, a go at Richard Keyes because um, he's an idiot. But I also think we probably shouldn't be giving no, him yeah, well, benefit the, of our this, time. This yeah. is what I was going to say to you, James, as well, because it's clearly cynical and a bit to generate this kind of a response, right? Yeah. And I'm not blind to that because you you cannot, whatever you think about Richard Keyes, and my opinion of him is uh, very low indeed, but whatever you think about him, you cannot work in live sport, in sports broadcasting, or even have a passing interest in sport. And, you know, he's worked for Sky. He's working now in, in, uh, for being sports. Um, he's been doing it for decades on live television, all of it. You just can't not understand what winning a game of football like that means, right? Mm -hmm. So to pretend that somehow this is over the top or whatever it is, is just nonsense. He doesn't even really believe it himself. You know, he's he's sort of just making some shit up to get a reaction. And here we are giving him the reaction. And I know we've kind of played into it, or I wouldn't say we've fallen into the trap. But what I also think is it's important, not just from an Arsenal fan's perspective, but from the perspective of all football fans, that this kind of policing of emotion in football, in whatever sport it is, um, which is in, in some ways driven by social media as well. You know, that kind of immediate, oh, yeah, it's only four games. Oh, you haven't won anything yet. You know, typical Arsenal, typical whatever. I mean, all of that should be pushed back on by every single fan who loves football and loves what football can give you. So that's why I think it's generated the kind of column inches and podcast minutes that it will generate because it should be, I'm not going to say not tolerated, but like if that's the best you can do, just fuck off and retire and let somebody who actually um, enjoys the sport, enjoys football and wants to um, help people uh, share in the celebration of the great things that football can give you, let someone else have a go at that job because you're just fucking old and past it and nobody really gives a fuck what you have to say. But when it's so egregious and so stupid, it's inevitable that people will, will react to it. Um, so hopefully we continue to make Richard Key's life absolutely miserable by winning and celebrating and everything else. Um, but I think it's just, it's basically pathetic and sad, really, what he has reduced himself to. Yeah, I agree. And and ultimately, it's his uh, bitterness that shines through. Mm. Um, and yeah, he, he seems like a, quite an unpleasant individual. Yeah, so, he does. Um, fuck him, basically. Yeah. Okay. Your question. <laughs> um, well, something I did enjoy uh, away from the Arsenal game, Ian, who's at IanBH7, says... How much did you enjoy the tackle on Richarlison last night? I watched it about 12 times and still find it very satisfying. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. I, I really did. Like, um, Who was the guy who, who did the tackle? Is it um, Anderson? Is that his name? 
Uh, um, I don't know, but we should. He should be knighted, really. I mean, the New Year's Honor list uh, awaits that guy. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm just yeah. gonna. I'm googling it here so I can watch it again. Brandon Johnson. Brand. Okay. Um, I mean, it was brilliant, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Yeah. I saw all the people go, oh, I know he was showboating, but you can't do that. Yeah, you fucking can. Yes, you can. It reminded me a little bit of, um, what was it? Lauren on Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, and the Remember thing that? is, again, I don't want to get into the business policing stuff. Like, if Richarlison wants to do oh, yeah. that showboating, that's fine. Do but it. he's got to know that other players on the pitch... There are going to be some consequences for that. Do you remember was a an FA Cup game against Manchester United? Um, Brennan Johnson. Yeah, well done to you, sir. Um, Son of David Johnson, who I think also played for Wales and Forest. Right. But there was, who was it? I think it could have been Nanny. And United were winning that game quite comfortably. I think we played a weakened team on the day and um, it was at Old Trafford. I think we lost 4-0. I could be mixing things up here. But he took the ball and ran and did some keepy-uppies and ran towards the touchline doing keepy-uppies. I think Abue tried to tackle him. And then it was, I think, Matthew Flamini came across and fucking plowed into a tackle, which he didn't make contact with the player. I think he was trying to. Mm. And had he made contact with the player, Nanny would have been about 10 rows up in the stands in yeah. at, at Old Trafford. And that kind of thing, players know fine well that if you do that on a pitch, other players are going to take exception to it. You know? Um, yeah. So... By all means, do it. No one's saying you can't do it, but expect consequences if you do. So, exactly, and you know, Richardson's not the most likable player in the Premier League. It's fair to say. Mm. So, uh, I didn't mind seeing that. Great entertainment all round. The kind of thing that commentators would say of both the showboating and the tackle. We don't really want to see that. And the reality is we would really like to see both. <laughs> Especially when it's on Richarlison, who, yeah, let's uh, face it, is uh, is one of those players who I will never get tired of uh, seeing him get kicked up in the air. Um, particularly now, even when he was in an Everton shirt, but particularly now that he's wearing um, a cock on a basketball. Um, <laughs> let me ask, uh, I've got a couple here about midfield. Um, yeah. Because... Mitch, who's at a uh, the AFC Franco, said, do you think a central midfielder is paramount? The reliance on an injury-prone party seems massive. El Nenny isn't a bad player, but only suits coming up against certain teams and seems to slow us down. We had many questions. Uh, Jamesy, who's at Jamesy A77, who says, at what point should we become concerned about Thomas Partey's injury record? At Arsenal, Keith Kennedy, do we depend too much on Partey? Shouldn't our focus for the rest of this window be uh, be finding an able deputy like dozens and dozens of questions about that and then i've got a slight follow-up one as well um which i think was on the discord so let me just ask you about the party thing and whether we should be pursuing a, a replacement and then i'll follow up with the other one uh, i'm not as i'm not as worried about it as some i'm a bit worried about it but i'm not as worried about it as some 
partly because I think the way that we're set up now has slightly changed the dependency on him. And secondly, because I don't, I'm not quite as down on Mohamed Elneny as most people, basically. I, I think that he's fair, while completely unspectacular, he is um, reliable. And I'm not sure that how possible it is to buy someone else who can do what Partey can do and expect them to not play. Mm. I, I just don't know who that player is. Um, and ultimately, Elneny's contract was renewed because he came into that position in the team last season and did a decent job. And I, I sort of think that decision was kind of made. Um do I wish Partey had less injuries? Yeah. You know, when should we be worried about his injury record at Arsenal? Probably about two years ago. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I see it a little bit differently in that I actually worry slightly more about the, the number eight role in midfield, only because for all El Nenny's limitations, I know he can play at the base of the midfield. Whereas I feel like if Shaka were to go out, um, yeah, unless you move Zinchenko, you know, there's a lot of talk about Oviera could play there or Smith Rowe could play there. Mm -hmm. But that all feels quite speculative at this point in time. It's not something we've really seen work. Um, so I, I, I agree central midfield is a is a little bit of a worry, but for me, it's almost more someone who can sit in that part of the pitch. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it is a worry, um, particularly when it's a thigh injury again. Like, is there something chronic there that we don't know about? Um, I, I, I have to say, I think I would feel a bit more comfortable with another midfield addition. Like, I, I'm all on board for us bringing in more firepower, as Mikel Arteta talked about last week. But I think... If we were to add something else in midfield, I'd feel extremely reassured about this squad and its ability to cope over the, the course of a season. Because, you know, like you say, if Shaka gets injured, I think Smith Rowe is capable. I think um, Fabio Vieira could be. I mean, one thing that maybe hasn't been mentioned um, is potentially Bukayo Saka playing in that position. Yeah, I did wonder yeah, if we might see if, that yesterday. At you know, if, game, yeah. if you have a yeah, if you have a another attacking player, if Bakayo Saka could play as that that left eight, he is certainly. Um, I think he's got the talent to do it. Um, but yeah, it's it is a it is a worry. Um, you know, parties injuries have been consistent. Um, and it's also almost always a thigh injury. So while they're saying precautionary, who knows? Um, yeah, I mean, and he wasn't on the bench, you know, running down the line like no. Zinchenko was. Um, you know, I think you felt quite reassured about Zinchenko seeing him celebrate like that, but mm. we don't have the same for, for, for Thomas Party at this point in time. Um, Can I follow up then with this one? It's also from the Discord from Freddie yeah. LJ, who said, what do you think Sambi's role is likely to be this season? He was surely worth looking at as the six yesterday, at least in the second half to provide more progression, but didn't get off the bench. Well, I guess, I guess he's another player who could fit into that sort of Shaka position. And that's where he's come on. And that's where we saw him in pre-season here and there. Um, 
I mean, I, I yeah, I, I don't have a problem with El Nene over Sambi as the number six because I feel like we've tried Sambi there and he's sort of shown that he's not ready for it. And I think El Nene has, is demonstrably um, a more reliable option in that position. That's my opinion. Um, I guess eventually that might change, but I'm not sure we're there yet. Yeah, I mean, he is he's an efficient player, El Nenny, in the sense that he does keep the ball moving, he keeps it circulating, he gives it to other players, but, you know, there isn't much progression from him. Um, and to be fair, there were a couple of there were a couple of um, games last season where he definitely was a bit more progressive. You just wonder in this game, was he just, you know, um, this is this is your job today. As you get it, you give it and, and keep moving around. Mm. Um, I, th- I think the thing is that, like, if you've got White and Zinchenko in the team, for example, then Elneny just being a kind of rotation passer, I think is fine. Um, it's when you start to lose, a, 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 you know, several players who are instrumental to your build-up. You know, if you start having to play, you know, there were periods last season where without wishing to be disparaging, we had to kind of, you know, Cedric, Holding, Elneny, all in the team. Mm. And um, that was kind of too many important build-up players for us to withstand losing. Um, I have to say, like, I, I don't think Arsenal are particularly close to anything and it's quite late in the window at this point in time. So I don't have enormous conviction that things will definitely happen. Um, well, yeah, here was a question from Galway Gunner on the Discord. He said, you mentioned on a previous pod, you think we'll get one more in before deadline day. Mm. Do you think this will still be the case, given how quiet it has gotten on the transfers front? And if so, who do you think it might be? So you're not talking specifically about midfield here. You're talking about in general. I saw David Ornstein's piece about Pedro Neto this morning, saying that that's very unlikely because of the fee that Fulham would want and their reluctant sellers anyway. But, you know, do you think that perhaps as we saw with uh, Lissandro Martinez, when that looked, um, you know, when that pursuit was over because of what happened with Manchester United, we went straight in for Zinchenko. So do you think there might be alternatives to Pedro Neto? Maybe. I mean, the question is how far down the list are you willing to go? You know, because mm. we're only talking about Pedro Neto because Rafinha didn't come off. So... You know, where are we at? Uh, and maybe there are other targets that have gone elsewhere. We don't know, right? So mm. we could be at number three or four already. And are you willing to go to number, Five you know, whatever six, it yeah. might be, at 50 million quid, if it's not the player you came into the window wanting? I don't know. And I, I, I've always thought Arsenal would do one more player and I thought it would be a wide player. Um, And, th- and this is... I've not spoken to anybody uh, since the game, so I, I, I can't, uh, you know, I've had a couple of days off, so I don't, I'm not as abreast of it as, you know, is mm. actually the case behind the scenes, but I don't um, have any sense that anything's particularly imminent. So mm. it will take a bit of a pivot, yeah. presumably, for something to happen between now and, is it Thursday night? Thursday night at 11pm, but I mean, Mikel Arteta did a, an interview with Sky Sports. I don't know if you saw it before the game. You talked. He no. talked about being short. We're a bit mm-hmm. short with the players that we've gone out. He talked about wanting more firepower. I think he uh, is very clear, at least, that he wants something to happen before the deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of course, we know it's more complicated than, well, just get anyone because we need someone. You have to get what you think is the right player. And he's made that point too, that it's got to be the right player, the right person, all that kind of stuff. But on the basis of his public um, exclamations about what he wants between now and the end of the market, it is it could be perceived as one of those things where a manager is trying to put a bit of pressure on the club to give him what he wants. Um so, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. It would yeah. be... Uh, I mean, the manager always wants new players. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, of and, course. Of and course. it was the same in January, I, I seem to recall, that, you know, he talked about the club trying to do what they can. and We have to maximise every window, isn't exactly, that Exactly, you know, and that's what you want from a coach, really, is to be putting pressure on those upstairs. But I, I do think Arsenal will be looking at this market. I mean, the Pedro Neto deal is really interesting. Like, I think arguably... Uh, Nottingham Forest <laughs> kind of fucked Arsenal a bit by paying what they did for Morgan Gibbs-White from right. Wolves. You know, because it distorts expectations and distorts the market. When you've got Manchester United paying 100 million euros for Anthony, mm. who statistically was, I think, Ajax's third best creative player last season... I wouldn't be surprised if Arsenal are looking at those kinds of numbers and looking at Gibbs White fee and what Wolves might have wanted for Neto subsequently and thinking we've got to be really sure. Like, we've got to be really sure. Mm. And I hope they do something. Don't get me wrong. I would I think a wide player's probably quite important having let Pepe go. I think probably, in my opinion, more important than central midfield, because I think, you know, you've got Sinchenko can play there, you've got Lakonga who we've barely seen. Who knows? You know, Smith Rowe and Vieira might flourish in that part of the pitch, mm. but out wide beyond Smith, uh, you know, I, I can see a situation where you look a bit light, and the fixture congestion between now and the World Cup is substantial. I mean, is yeah. there a month where Arsenal have nine games? nine games October? Yeah, yeah. So six Premier League, three Europa League. Yeah. So unless they're planning to use you know Marquinhos a lot more than we envisaged. I think that does sound quite demanding. But I do wonder if I do wonder if clubs might this is not based on any information, just purely my um guess. As much as that looks incredibly congested, clubs may also say, Well, we're in September now and in November the season stops for a bit. Mm. And I do wonder if there will be maybe more focus on the January window than is usual because it will almost feel like a weird kind of pre-season post the World Cup. Mm. And there's also always a market post the World Cup. You know, there are players who move based on their performances in the tournament. Um, and I, I do wonder if they may think, well, we can get to November and then there'll be another market in mid-season. Yeah, it'll yeah, be yeah. like a weird kind of second summer. But I hope they do something. But, uh, you know, I, I hope that they can add quality between now and Thursday. I just get, I think I just know that they won't compromise the recruitment principles that have got them to this point um, in doing so. Yeah, well, I think that's right. Um, as much as I want a new player, you know, we've talked endlessly about what mistakes in the transfer market cost you, not just on the pitch, but when you try and move those players on, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, 
You know, Arteta also has spoken about how frantic he expects the last few today yeah. days to yeah. be. Kind of what word he used? He powerful. Said like powerful. It's yeah. going to be powerful. I mean, he's not wrong, you know, with United spending that kind of money and I'm sure other clubs will do deals too. Who knows? We mm. will see. Edu, you know, uh, we're coming out of barbecue season, so Edu is going to be around and available. Um, <laughs> fingers crossed that we can pull a rabbit out of a hat. But right now, Monday morning, it doesn't feel. I mean, how do you feel? Do you think? Do you, does your gut say they'll get something done? I just based on everything Arteta has said, I'd be a bit surprised and disappointed if we didn't. Mm. Um, I mean, but, it's but who it is, I don't last know. Last summer, sorry to cut across, but last summer we were all saying we could do with a right back, and the night before transfer deadline day, mm. Arsenal did a deal with Bologna for Tommy Asu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things can happen quickly. You know, that is yeah. um, that is the reality of the market. Sometimes deals are complicated. Sometimes they take ages. But when the clock is ticking, as it will be this week, um, all parties involved are minded to act as you know quickly and efficiently as possible. So yeah. if they can and, identify and, and when someone... Arsenal, when we've had deadline days in the past where we've needed something and it hasn't happened or we've wanted something that hasn't happened, um, I think it's pretty rare that Arsenal are like, well, let's just twiddle our thumbs. Everyone's got the day off today. Uh, yeah. Everyone go home. Like, I think uh, usually there are sort of speculative talks close to the deadline. Mm. And it's a question of if enough dominoes fall for those to come to fruition. But okay, yeah, if I had to, if I had to place a bet, I would say maybe a wide man, but I'm not, I'm not sure they'll do the central midfield. I don't think the club see share the fans um sense that that is a priority position. Right. But I might be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think if we bring anyone in, it will be a wide player. It won't be a central midfielder. So, Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. But, you know, if a great opportunity to upgrade in central midfield comes along, then I think uh, they'll be open to it. I sure, just, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I'm not expecting anyone to come along and give me a million pounds, but... You know, if that person came <laughs> along, maybe, I would be open to it. You know, maybe they know, who knows what they know about Thomas Partey, as, mm. about his injury at this point in time. You know, mm -hmm. it, it happened reportedly on Friday afternoon. They may not even have scanned it pre-game. Mm. So they may be looking at that today and saying, oh, actually, maybe we do need a midfield player. <laughs> maybe so. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to predict because I think it's going to be quite chaotic. And, Probably a few players to go. I mean, I, you know, it's Maitland, Niles, and Bellerin, isn't it? Principally, that you yeah. look at and think. And Reese Nelson. Reese Nelson's got that injury. Well, he's so back in training. I saw him back in training. So, Is he? He's, yeah, yeah, fair play. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe that's. Um, well, those three need to go for the sake of their own careers. You know, if they want to play football regularly, they need to go uh, and go somewhere. Um, I know Hector is very specific about where he needs to go, but Maitland-Niles and Reese Nelson, lads, you know, you're very much on the fringes. Even with Europa League football, you're not going to get any regular playing time. A couple of games, maybe. Um, a couple of uh, appearances in the group stages, who knows? But 
yeah, they need to go. They need to go and just get their careers back on track. And I hope they do uh, find some good moves. So we'll see what happens between now it's and Thursday. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah, if I, if I, well, obviously, if I find, if I hear any more, I'll let you know. But I think, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be stories about Arsenal trying to get business done. It's mm. just a question of if it's right. And if I don't, I, I don't think they'll do it if they think it's not. You know, if they're not convinced about the player and the person. And I think that is the correct course of action. All right. Your question. Um, I just wanted to make that noise. It's good noise. What about this? Red and white 11 is Joe on Twitter. Goodly morning, fellas. Could and should there be rotation for Wednesday's game? And does a cameo like Eddie's against Fulham put him in contention for a start mm. and then gingers for Limpard will Eddie and or Emil Smith-Rowe start on Wednesday I think we might see a couple of changes for Wednesday's game because we do have um, we do have United on Sunday yeah I think he has to get players involved even if let's say he wants to pick the in inverted commas same team for the game against United I think he probably needs to make sure that the likes of Smith-Rowe um, Fabio Vieira even as well. I'm not talking about him as a star, but certainly he should get some minutes against Aston Villa. Hopefully we're in a position to do that. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, the question, you know, is when it comes to Eddie, who does he start in place of? Do you rest Gabriel Jesus? Don't know. Um, do you rest Bakayo Saka, for example? to rest Jesus, yeah. No, I don't think so either. But, you know, I can see the I could see why you might consider a start for Eddie, but I don't know who misses out to make that happen. Yeah. I I mean the team is functioning really well and we've lost a couple of mm. key players already. So you do worry about changing too much. I mean Tommy Asu's another one who yeah. could be in line for more involvement. Um but then do you want to disrupt White Saliba Gabriel, you know, so it, mm. it's tricky. I, I think, I think we might see a couple of changes. I, I think Tommy Asu's got a chance of playing this game. Who would he but- play ahead of? I think um, maybe Ben White, who I think has been really good this season, uh, and mm. I wrote about him today on the blog, uh, just because I I really like him as a player, uh, as a defender as well. I, 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 I'm sort of um, growing a fondness for him. Um, but I think he's been great. But maybe a couple of times in the games we've played towards the end, they've sort of mentioned, oh, Ben White's gone down there. Is he? Oh, he's back up on his feet. So he's I don't know if he's... a lot more ground than he'll yeah, be accustomed to. Well, that's it, you know. Um, playing right back is a lot more demanding than playing centre half. Not that they're yeah. both not demanding, the but you've got to get up and down the pitch. Yeah, exactly. I'm new to him. Um, so I think he could maybe be rested for Tomiyasu. And then I do think Eddie probably has got a good, good chance of starting. But where? Um, like, do we play a two? Who misses out? Does he, I, you know... Cup says maybe Jesus will play wide. Um, maybe Martinelli or Saka rested. Um I'm not sure it'd be much more changed than that. No, I don't think you can afford to do too much if you're missing two players yeah. through injury anyway. You don't want to disrupt too much, do you? I think we're talking about a couple. So maybe Smith Rowe had a great game, of course, in this fixture last season at home to Aston Villa. Um, 
maybe Smith Rowe, mm. but I think we might see two changes. Yeah. Okay. And we'll I think Eddie's got a good chance. He's got a good chance to be one of them because he did make such a positive impression. Yeah, I think he did as well. Okay, here's a question from Aaron on the Discord. He said, all the goals we've conceded this season have been due to individual errors. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I think it's a good thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sounds sounds bad, doesn't it? But Mm. I think it's a good thing. Here's a sort of curious um, anecdotal uh, observation. Right. I play fantasy football. Uh, since. I'm actually doing quite well, Andrew. Oh, are you? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Let's see where I am in the uh, Arse Blog League. Yeah, let's have a look here. I'm num- I'm 34th. Ooh, not bad. Out of how many are in it? Uh, too many. There's a couple of thousand, I think. Yeah. So I'm not doing too bad. Um, I am, you know... I'm, I'm just a millionth in oh, the world. I so. am <laughs> I am on minus 49 points. <laughs> my my overall rank is 9,649,369 out of 9,818,370. I got no points this week and I made a load of transfers so I lost points as well. Um, wow. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm doing really well. I'm top of the Comedians Fantasy Football League. I'm leading the likes of Lloyd Griffith and Richard Osman, Ian Sterling. They wish they were me. They're not laughing now, are they? Yeah, exactly. I'm second in the Athletic Staff League to some young upstart called Art de Roche. Who's that um, guy? Never anyway, the point being, <laughs> I, I follow a guy on there who is um, – I follow a guy on Twitter who's like a fantasy football, you know, guru. Right. And he's been saying, because Ramsdale was a very popular choice as goalkeeper, and he's been saying to everyone, um, you should sell Ramsdale because uh, he's not making, he's not having to make many saves in games. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And you get points for if they make a certain number of saves. And, you know, he was saying Arsenal's defending is meaning that they aren't conceding many high-quality chances. Okay. Um, and therefore, shit Ramsdale out and get someone who's going to have to make more saves. Now, I, I only um, mention that because I, I think it speaks to sort of the structural security of this Arsenal team. And actually, yes, some individual errors have cost us, but... I actually think that's easier to iron out or easier to write off in some cases than big structural sure. organisational issues. Sure, I agree. Um, I agree. It's not like the um, 35 shots we conceded against Watford under Unai Emery because the team defensively and organisationally was just all over the place. Yeah, you know? I think the shape is really good and, and the discipline is really good. Um by the way, I just quickly on the subject of Ramsdale, he did make a, a another save we didn't mention right at the end, very late yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Which uh, again, was, not long after, like similar to these in uh, not Zinchenko, uh, Mitrovic chance that came after we scored. This was pretty soon after we had um, uh, gone ahead, so it was a set piece yes, as well. Wasn't uh, there it? is there is sometimes a skittishness in those moments mm. um, from the team. I do think. It's still the case that Arsenal are a very emotional 
team and mm. there's st- positive and negative that can come from that at the moment it's being channeled very positively but uh, we shall see but anyway the, the point being individual errors don't hugely worry me they happen to um most defenders it's about regularity and it's about recovery and i think um i have faith that there'll be sort of blips for for most of those individuals mm. Yeah, I hope so. Anyway, yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, the own goal a bit unfortunate. Gabriel's mistake. You know, he's not doing that every week by any means. So, no. uh, and I would say the second goal against Leicester isn't really an individual error. The defending maybe wasn't as good as it could have been, but I don't see an individual like a howler in there, like like Gabriel, for example. Um, I just think it was unfortunate. Like we said at the time, it looks bad when it goes through a goalkeeper's legs, but he has to stand. Um, so sometimes you just get caught out with that kind of finish. Yeah. What about this from Tony Kiant? And Tony Kiant, who's at 2-0 down on Twitter, says, I thought it was interesting that Tierney was positioning himself inside a lot, similar to Zinchenko's role, rather than his usual high and wide positioning. But he didn't seem very effective at it. Do you think it's a role he can adjust to? I'm not sure. I did observe that myself as well. Mm. He was definitely doing a lot of that. I did, yeah. I did see him. I just not a hundred percent sure that he could do it in the same way that Zinchenko can do it because Tierney is a left back. You know, he is a defender. He's a left back, and he is somebody who can play in a three at the back, right? But first and foremost, he is a defender. Zinchenko started life as a number 10 and sort of ended up playing left back um, because that's where he was needed at Man City and he's playing there because he was needed there for us. But primarily he is an attacking, you know, his mindset is attacking, it's midfield. Technically, you know, there's usually a difference between the technical level of players who play in defense and those who play further forward in terms of quick feed, in terms of movement, the way they move the ball. And that's, you know, I'm not saying it's true of all defenders, but I've, I think I've said it to you here before. Sometimes there've been a couple of, you know, sometimes you can see that Kieran Tierney, um, he reverts to a safety first kind of mentality. You know, he will lump the ball forward at times when maybe, he could have taken it down and played a pass or whatever, you know, and that's not, I'm not saying he's just a long ball merchant or anything like that. I think he's a very good footballer. I think he's a great left back, but he's not really suited to that inside left midfield role, Um, which isn't to say he can't do it, but I just don't think it's natural for him. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the other thing to say, of course, is that this is his first start of the season having come back from a long absence due to knee surgery. So I think we need to see a bit more of him, you know, this season getting his match fitness and maybe playing in that role before we make any definitive judgment. But I don't think he will ever be as good at it as Zinchenko, but I don't think Zinchenko is as good a defender as Kieran Tierney. Yeah, I think that's all true. I think this might be explained by the fact that they didn't know they were going to lose Zinchenko until Friday. Mm. And they prepared the team to set up 
in that shape and play in that way. I think if they'd known going in a few days before that it would be Tierney, they might have. We might have seen Tierney play more conventional more, left yeah, back. Yeah, I think so. I think it was kind of like we've lost Zinchenko at the last minute. You need to step in and do his job. Mm. And I actually agree with you. I'm not convinced that he can really replicate that role. Um, I think he's just a very different footballer. Mm. Um, and I think that's fine. Yeah. I think that's fine. I think that um, there will be times where we, we want that. But uh, yeah, I, I think that maybe the lateness of the change in lineup is what caused him to be in that slightly unfamiliar um, sure. role. Right. Well, I think we should probably leave it about there. Apart from, you know, this, I like this one from the Discord, um, from Desi underscore R. She said, goodly morning, gents. The back five that finished the game, uh, i.e. holding White, Tommy Asu, Gabriel Saliba, if they stand on top of each other, do you think they'll be as tall as the stick that Richard Keyes has up his arse? Well, he says, but, but I think arse is much better for for that one. And um, yeah. Ronnie on Twitter, who is at Ron is great, says, I've recently acquired a large amount of salty tears. I was going to crystallize them and enjoy them with a margarita or two. Have you got any other suggestions? <laughs> um, yeah, with a margarita, with a yeah, nice bit of tequila in it. Why the not? only thing I would say is that, like, if they're the salty tears of Richard Keys and you're making salt out of Richard Keys tears, I don't think I'd want that. I don't, no, that's don't true. Think I don't I'd want like to that. suggest that. No, On, under any circumstances, unless you could do something like, um. Jurassic Park, where you extract his DNA from crystallized Richard Keyes tears and you make an amusement park with the Keysosaurus just going around blundering about how things used to be better in the old days. Um, not wow. sure many people would go and visit that, though. <laughs> be a bit shit, wouldn't no. it? No. Yeah, he's not. He's not the fun kind of dinosaur. No, with the Andy Grayosaurus going along, just agreeing with everything that the Richard Keysosaurus says. Yeah, <laughs> now that's a terrible idea. My amusement park um, career is hit the skids already. Okay, well look. We leave it there. Um, thank you very much, as always, for listening. It's going to be a busy week. Join myself and Phil Costa later this afternoon over on Patreon for an episode of The 30, in which we look back at the Premier League weekend. We'll have a preview podcast for you um, for the Aston Villa game tomorrow, also on Patreon. Myself and Lewis will be doing that. And, of course, things will happen later in the week. We're deadline day, uh, and we'll react to the Villa game, look ahead to the game at the weekend as well. So, for now, take it easy. Thank you for listening, as always, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.